0: How much does music impact our state of mind? Over the last decade, there's been multiple studies that have shown just how big of an impact music actually has on our emotional lives. In 2013, the Journal of Positive Psychology conducted a study that discovered that individuals who listen to music that could be classified as happy or upbeat were able to improve their overall mood in a matter of a few short weeks. A couple years later, the American Music Therapy Association found that people who listened to music either before, during, or after surgery experienced less pain and had less anxiety compared to those who didn't listen to music. And from a purely anecdotal perspective, who here has not made a playlist of sad love songs to help them get through a breakup? Martin Luther once famously quipped, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim God's word through music. Now, our time together this morning is not about music, but what I want us to think about and to consider is how what we take in with our ears impacts the way that we perceive the world around us. It impacts our moods. It impacts the way that we treat people, and it impacts the way that we perceive God himself. Over the last 18 months, the noise and screaming of the world has unfortunately, in my mind and in my opinion, drowned out the music of the gospel in many of our lives. You see, our playlist for the last few months has been lockdowns, masks, vaccines, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, conspiracy theories, elections. Ah. That's been what we've listening to, and what's happened is that there's this ringing in our ears, and we become a people who need help getting rid of it. See, nowadays we're people who are more nervous, more distrustful, more exhausted, more ashamed, more regretful, more disappointed, traumatized, we're more worried, and we're more hurt. As the church overseers were considering what a good approach would be for a three week sermon series here over the summer, we wanted to select a topic or a book that might quiet the noise of the world around us. And I think the best remedy for this is to be reminded of who we worship explicitly, who we put our hope and our confidence in. During the Reformation era of church history, there was a particular emphasis on something called the threefold office of Jesus Christ. And what do we mean by the threefold office? Well, office just simply means job or a role, something he does. And obviously, we can describe Jesus in more ways than that, but the Reformers put a particular emphasis on Jesus' role as prophet, his role as priest, and his role as king. Now, the goal of this sermon series is to turn up the volume on who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that he is our true prophet. He's the one voice that we hear and whose voice we gladly follow. He's our true priest. He's the one that we truly rely on to bring us to the throne of God and the one we truly rely on to make atonement for all of our sins. And Jesus is also our king though that seems so hard to believe in this season, but He is the truly sovereign King who is at this very moment ruling and reigning over all of the earth and eagerly awaiting the time where His Father tells Him to gather His people and make His enemies His footstool. Now with those three in mind, I want us to fix our eyes this time on Jesus' role as prophets and what that means for us today. So. To begin our time, what exactly is a prophet? P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Let's go back to verse 1. Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So, the simple definition of a prophet would be somebody that God uses as a mouthpiece for Himself. Contrary to what we might think, God rarely comes in this loud, booming, thunderous voice in a pitch black cloud, but often he sends a human being to go to the nations or to the Gentiles on his behalf. And as the author of Hebrews points out, it says this happened in the past at many times and in various ways. Now, I know some of us are more well acquainted with the Old Testament than others, but three prophets to think about who are very popular when considering this are Isaiah, Jonah, and Hosea. Those are pretty popular prophets, ones that we should know, and each of them had wildly different ministries. On the one hand, they all had different audiences. Isaiah prophesied to Judah, Hosea prophesied to Israel, and Jonah prophesied to Nineveh. And they also took wildly different forms in their ministry. Isaiah's ministry was mainly of speaking and writing about who God is Hosea, of course, as you might know, was commanded to marry the prostitute Gomer in order to display God's covenant faithfulness to unfaithful Israel, showing what God does. And Jonah, which we studied recently, was a nationalist who had no desire to help Nineveh at all. He ran away, but ended up speaking less than 10 words to that city and got the entire town to repent. Oh, and he got swallowed up by a fish. Now, there are many more prophets that God used, including people like Balaam or Micah or Deborah or Jeremiah or Miriam or Elijah. But the main point here that Hebrews is saying to us is that God has sent many different people at many times, and they've impacted us in a variety of ways. However, despite these differences, I think the prophets seem to carry with them three main messages. They seem to preach to us who God is, what God does, and who God's people really are. And this holds true all the way through to the ministry of John the Baptist and all the way to Jesus himself. Jesus tells us who God is, what God does, and who God's people are. In the person of Jesus Christ, verse 2, we have this final sent prophet of God. No more in various times and in many ways, but a final sent prophet of God. He has spoken to us by his Son, through whom uh, he made the universe, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The summary of those statements is that Jesus displays to us who God is. And he can do this because, notice, the prophet that the Father sent in Christ is one that knows him intimately. You see, the prophets of old, God knew everything about them. He knew everything about them, but the prophets themselves knew just a sliver, just a slice of who God was that they were speaking for. They knew enough to speak and to minister to people, but they didn't know enough to give us a complete satisfactory picture of who God was. In some sense, they were like the moon in the fact that the moon doesn't actually have any light to give us. It borrows the light from the sun. We got the moon in these prophets. We didn't get the sun. We got a type or a shadow. And so by sending the sun, the Father was sending himself. He was sending his own person, his own being, his own co-equal, one that he intimately knew and one that intimately knew him. By sending His Son, God the Father was sending the radiance of His glory. The radiance of His glory. What a statement. Meaning Jesus was the brilliance, the radiation, the twinkling, the gleam, the glow, the dazzling, shimmering, glittering, flashing luminescence of the glory of God. That's what Jesus is for us. That's the last prophet that God sent to us. He's the brightness of God's glory, the beauty of God's person. That's who God desired for us to see when we think about who God is. And to be crystal clear, the author of Hebrews writes, he's the exact imprint. He's the exact representation of God to us, meaning that if we have seen and heard the prophet Jesus' voice, we have seen and heard the Father tail end of John's gospel, there's this interesting question that comes. So Jesus is gathering with his disciples. He knows he's going to go to the cross soon. He's trying to give them some final words of encouragement. And as he's saying all this, Philip, one of the apostles, pipes in and says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Philip's like, listen, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough encouragement for our hearts. And Jesus gives this really interesting response. Because he says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. What's he saying there? Jesus?" perfectly images the Father to us. And if we have seen and heard Jesus, we have seen and heard the Father. To put it negatively, if we've not seen Jesus, we have not seen the Father. Part of Jesus's declaration to the world as a prophet and to the Jewish people in particular was that they did not know who God was. They didn't have a good grasp of who he is. Think about the challenge that he gives to the people earlier in John's gospel. He says this, he says, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you don't really get who the Father is. And if you got who the Father is, then you'd know me. You'd believe in me. You'd love me. You'd worship me. Jesus came that we might know God the Father, not just in words on a page, but a living word before our very eyes. Jesus is the representation of the Father. He's unified with him. There's no differences in the character between the Father and the Son, think about this. The same God who sent the prophet Elisha to heal Naaman the leper shows his same compassion by sending the true prophet Jesus to the ten lepers to heal them. The same God who met Hagar beside a spring in the desert and spoke tenderly with her in a season of darkness is the same God in Jesus Christ who speaks tenderly to the Samaritan woman at the well." The same God who displays his long-suffering in sending the prophet Jeremiah to the religious elite of his day also shows his long-suffering with every love-soaked word that comes from the lips of Jesus' mouth to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus displays the Father to us. We have this reflection and the character of God, and that God invites us to know him intimately. That's why he sent Christ, that we might know him, that we might hear his voice and see his form and heed his calling on our lives. He is the image of the invisible God. But Jesus not only reveals who God is, he reveals to us what God does. We talked a little bit earlier about the ministry of Hosea, and if you've not uh, familiarized yourself with Hosea, Hosea was this prophet to Israel, and he, co- he was commanded by the Lord to go and marry a prostitute. Kind of a ridiculous request, no? Like, go marry a prostitute. And he does. And it was to put on display the actions of God with Israel. It was to show God's covenant faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. Hosea was giving us a picture of what God's actions looked like. And Jesus does the same thing. He answers the question that we might have in our hearts. If God walked on the earth, what would he be doing? And Jesus does exactly how God describes himself in the Old Testament. He dwells with the humble like he did with Simon. He binds up the brokenhearted like he did with the widow's son. He shows himself to be faithful when we are unfaithful when he restored Peter. He forgives the very worst of sins and tenderly invites us to communion with himself. You see, the reason that we have four accounts of the life of Jesus is because what God wants us to dwell on, what he wants us to see, is he wants to see the actions of Jesus. He wants us to see and meditate on the actions of Christ, not just so that we can be a people who emulate it, but because we need to be a people who know these things. We need to have this full, radiant picture of the ways of God. And and one of the best ways that I can illustrate this to make the comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament is to consider two ways that the Bible expresses God's compassion. They're both powerful, but they just hit us differently. So in Exodus, if you remember the Exodus story, Joseph has become the right-hand man to Pharaoh, and Joseph dies. Pharaoh forgets about uh, Joseph and All the Israelites begin multiplying like crazy, and so Pharaoh's like, all right, they're going to attack us one day, and we're going to be outnumbered, so let's put them into slavery. Let's throw God's people into chains and make them build stuff for us. And the people of God, it says, cried out. The people of Israel groaned because their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his Covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. It says, God saw the people of Israel, God knew. Vayada Elohim. It's meant to show his deep compassion for his people. He knows they're groaning. But those two words don't hit us as hard as two words found in John's gospel. John 11.35, Jesus wept. In Christ, we see the actions of God on display. And there's a difference between knowing that God knows your pain and understanding your pain and then seeing God weep with you in your pain. We see how God would act if he's on the earth. Jesus is displaying God to us, and he tells us that he would weep with us. Two weeks from now, on June 25th, will be the seventh anniversary of my dad's passing. Uh, And of course, next week is Father's Day, so June's just kind of a tricky month emotionally for me. But I remember when we were planning out my dad's funeral, and we were going through various scripture passages that we could read. And the pastor went to John chapter 11. And, and if you're familiar with the story, you might remember how it goes. But uh, Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, has died unexpectedly from an illness. And Jesus shows up and, and Martha comes running up to him and is just like, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Right? That's, that's, a, that's how I felt. And then we see Mary grieving along to the side, and Jesus is like, all right, just take me to the tomb. And as he gets there, it says, Jesus wept. And that verse gripped me, and I think it grips us in a different way, because like, we know that God knows our pain, right? Like we, we know that he like, understands it in kind of this intellectual way. I know he sees it, but what I needed to hear, what you might need to hear in the season of grief is that Jesus weeps with you in your pain. There's a God who sheds tears too. The final purpose of a prophet, not only to display to us who God is and what God does, but he was also to reveal, he or she was to reveal who God's people were and how they were supposed to act. The prophetic books of the Old Testament often contain pleas for repentance, and then they would offer illustrations or they would uh, give commands for what that repentance would look like. And if you're truly God's person, this is how you will live. One verse that we often think about uh, that I think highlights this really well is in uh, the prophet Micah in chapter 6, verse 8, and you could probably quote this to me. It says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Pretty straightforward. That's how God's people are called to act. But Micah was prophesying to them because this wasn't happening. He was convicting them. He was rebuking them. They weren't acting justly. They weren't delighting in mercy, and they were not walking humbly with God. Now, that verse might make for a good Christian bumper sticker or a cute sign in your kitchen, but it's also a rebuke. It's God telling his people, you're not doing this. And Jesus, part of his ministry, part of his prophetic ministry, was to do that. Yes, he gives us abundant grace, but he also gives us truth. Jesus is the master diagnostician. He can tell us just what is wrong with us. And what he tells us is that we have heart problems. Not afib, not a murmur, not a blockage, but a heart that refuses to submit to the prophetic voice of Jesus. And maybe this is you, or you can even think about this in our culture, but think about the Sermon on the Mount. some of the things that Jesus tells us. He tells us, hey, don't take a lingering look at your neighbor's spouse because it's adultery, and we just kind of drown it out. Jesus tells us hatred is akin to murder, and we have this tendency to just put our fingers in our ears and go, I'm not listening to that. And then he tells us to sell all we have and give it to the poor in order to find treasure in heaven, and we just go, "Nah, he's just, he's using a hyperbole. Heck, we won't even let Jesus tell us that we're failures who need his grace and his blood, and yet we are. Every person in the sanctuary, myself included, is a sinner because we have not obeyed Jesus' prophetic voice perfectly. We've drowned him out. We haven't listened to him. And the fact that he's here is proof of that because he's here to convict us. Prophets didn't go to people who were doing well. They went to people who were utterly failing. Which brings us to the question, what's the solution? Tail end of our text this morning, Hebrews 1.3 says, he's provided purification for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When Jonah ran away from God's mission for him, it says he got into a boat. And when he got into a boat, a storm arose and nearly capsized the entire ship. I've never been on a boat in a ferocious storm, but I can only imagine how helpless you feel. Looking at all of these waves coming after you, no moon in the sky to guide you. Water tumbling onto the boat, people trying to bail water out. And these sailors who are crying out, I mean, they're they're not wimps. Like, they've done this before. And yet they're calling out on random gods to save them. And Jonah, knowing what's happening, said to the sailors, Listen, if you throw me into the sea, it'll calm. It'll cease. The storm will be stopped. And you'll escape with your lives. When God's people failed to listen to a prophet, When they failed to image him and live for God, judgment came. And the judgment for our sins, based on what Jesus has told us, is physical death and spiritual separation from God. Those are the waves that Jesus warns is coming for us with each passing second. And he says, someone needs to succumb to these waves. Somebody needs to get thrown into them, either you or me. Jesus said to the Pharisees, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now something greater, a greater prophet than Jonah is here. What's Jesus saying to us? That Jesus, like the prophet Jonah, will be cast out into the sea so that the stormy waves of sin and death might be calmed and an undeserving multitude of people who repent might be brought into God's family. But Jesus, unlike Jonah, is not running from his mission field. He ran straight to it and says, I will freely give myself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now he stands at the right hand of the Father, eagerly waiting the time of his return. So, this morning, as we close, I want to speak to those of you here today who might be skeptical sailors, not knowing which God seems to be sending storm after storm into your life, not knowing which God is in control of everything, not knowing who to pray to, not knowing which God to try to worship. Out of all the gods in the world, Jesus is the only one who threw himself into the sea of death for you. And through his sacrifice, there is a purification for our sins available if we will trust him. And friend, there is no better person, there is no better voice to listen to than his. He's worthy of our attention, and I plead with you to give it to him. And to those of us who have heard this prophetic voice and are imperfectly, but yes, pursuing him, when you go out of these doors this morning, there are going to be a million different voices and noises and sounds and playlists vying for our attention. And it won't stop. And so I invite us on this t- at this time to be on guard and to consider who is the main voice in my life? Who has the authority over me? Who am I listening to? Is it my boss at work? Is it, am I just hanging on the... Every word of my boyfriend or, the, or my girlfriend? Is it a newspaper columnist, a TV personality, a TV show? Is it a politician or a, a famous pastor or theologian? Who gets to tell you who God is? Who gets to be your prophet? Who gets to speak to you and tell you who you are? May it be nobody this morning other than Jesus. Because only Jesus is someone that we can trust to tell us the truth with an abundance of blood-bought grace. He says to us, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. And just like our shepherd, we ourselves can start to imperfectly display to people around us, people in this world, who God is, what he does, and what God's people ought to look like. With so much noise in the world, the church needs to make her prophetic voice heard. And so I encourage you this morning to turn up the volume on the gospel, to to listen to it with an abundance of joy, knowing that Jesus was my purification for my sins, and now because of his work, I can stand before God the Father and know him intimately. Turn up the volume on this gospel truth. Let's pray. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Father, I plead with you this morning to convict us and encourage us. Lead us back into the green pastures of your word and your love. Father, lead us beside the the gentle waters and still our hearts and souls in you. Father, you have the power and the grace to do this. And I plead with you to do that this morning in my heart and in the hearts of these people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.